Today on the podcast, what it means to get a college education from Cambridge University, one of the oldest colleges in the world. What, what? Good show. today's podcast here at the Back Porch Education Podcast, I have the joy and honor of interviewing Josie Parker today, who um, I have known for many years, uh, both as a student here in America and now a student over in the UK studying uh, for her undergraduate degree at Cambridge University. And she received that here recently and is deciding for a little bit more uh, torture from that institution by going on to her master's. She doesn't look at it as torture, but uh, you hear Cambridge University and you feel like you have to put on a, a false uh, English accent. But in keeping with Back Porch Education, which I think she occasionally listens to, um, she's brought a poem. And so, Josie, uh, share with us your poem. All right. Well, I feel like the relation to what we're talking about today is pretty self-explanatory, so I'll just jump right in. So this poem is called Inside of King's College Chapel, Cambridge, um, and it's by William Wordsworth. Tax not the royal saint with vain expense, with ill-matched aims, the architect who planned, albeit laboring for a scanty band of white-robed scholars only, this immense and glorious work of fine intelligence. Give all thou canst, high heaven rejects the lore of nicely calculated less or more, so deemed the man who fashioned for the sense these lofty pillars, spread that branching roof, self-poised, and scooped into ten thousand cells where light and shade repose, where music dwells lingering, and wandering on as loth to die, like thoughts whose very sweetness yieldeth proof that they were born for immortality. Well, that's a fine one for what we're talking about, as you said, and for some of those, some of those lines just do a teacher's part uh, wonderfully well. Uh, give all thou canst. <laughs> I, uh, I wish more students had that mentality um, rather than the nicely calculated less or more. Um, uh, we, we do today uh, have a tendency to view education very you in, in a very utilitarian way. Um, what can I get out of it that I might get more out of a job or life or, or whatnot. And, and there is a selfish aspect to education, to be sure. But if there isn't something like a delight expressed in this poem, um, it very quickly becomes something to be endured rather than something to be enjoyed. And, and I think uh, uh, Wordsworth is, is opting for the, the better part uh, of something that's enjoyable. Uh, as, as we get started, Josie, uh, obviously, whenever we have somebody on, um, I gave you a very brief introduction. Why don't you first tell us just a little bit about your intellectual educational history, uh, who you are, where you've come from, where you're headed, and then I'll start uh, picking your brain about uh, college. But, but tell us how you got to college and then some of your purpose in being there and, and where you want to go from there. Yeah, sure. Um, so 
I grew up in Eastern North Carolina in Greenville. Um, and basically from kindergarten until 12th grade, I attended a classical Christian school there. It was very small. I graduated in a class of 16. Um, and I actually, so I, Buck Holler has been on the podcast before, and he was my Latin teacher all the way from seventh grade through to 12th. Um, and I know Steve and Jason actually taught me as well a bit. So yeah, it's, it's interesting interacting with them now, not as a student, um, the final couple of years of high school, I had gotten really into Latin. Um, my senior year, I was the only person in our Latin class. So it was just me and um, Mr. Holler. And we had quite a good time. But I think I realized somewhere around junior year that I wanted to study Latin and classics, um, which includes Greek and Roman and Greek culture in general at university. So I first got put on to Cambridge while I was in Italy. Um, so my um, the summer after my junior year, I went over to Italy to a Latin summer program for two months with um, Mr. Holler and Jason as well. And while we were there, I ended up meeting a few people who were about to start their master's at Cambridge and who had just finished their undergrad. So in the same position that I am now. And I remember one specific conversation where we had um, we were sitting down after dinner, just sort of chatting, um, and they started talking a bit about their experiences at Cambridge. And I thought, hmm, well, that sounds like something I might be interested in trying. Um, so I sort of applied on a whim and then was very pleasantly surprised when I got an interview. And at Cambridge, they, well, I don't know how COVID's affected all of this, but they used to not do online interviews. So you either had to travel to an interview center in your country, and I think the nearest one was like New York City or something like that, or you had to travel over to the university itself to do your interview. And I figured if I'm going to be spending three or four years there, I might as well see the university. <laughs> Check it out firsthand. Don't, uh, don't mail it in, as it were. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, so me and my dad traveled over there together. And I had my interview. Um, and I'm sure we can talk a bit more about the interview and stuff later. But it's very different from what you would think of with an American interview. I interviewed with the people who would be teaching me. And they asked me, basically, how much I knew about Latin and classics. So I had that interview. And then I came home. And I ended up getting an offer. And it's very hard to turn Cambridge down, is what I will say. Um, so I've um, been over there now for three years um, and I'm back at home now with all of the COVID stuff that's going on, but I'm planning on going back to start my MPhil um, in October. So, yeah. Okay. A few questions that come out of that. Um, did you apply or in particular, did you, did you go through much of a process with any colleges here in America so that so that we can compare that a little bit. Yeah, no, I did. I applied to I applied to a ridiculous number of schools. I would not recommend it to any high school students. Now I applied to fifteen. Um, wow, it was way too many, um, and it was a bit torturous. But it's okay. I I did it, and it was it's over now. <laughs> um, but yes, I applied to many in the U.S. So compare that experience. What what kinds of things were, in particular were different between the interviews? that you had here in the United States and, and over in Cambridge? So I would say probably the biggest difference is what sort of things they're looking for. So in the UK and at Cambridge in particular, I ought to backtrack first. So when you apply, you're applying to study a subject. 
So you can't do a lot what you do in the U.S. where you just apply and you're sort of undecided and can figure out what you want to actually be majoring or minoring in later. In the U.K., you apply specifically to study one subject. You don't have general education requirements. You go in and you study what you want to study for three or four years. So when you're applying, the main things that they're looking for is how have you prepared yourself to study that subject? Um, what excites you um, about that subject? And, you know, what you're looking to do going forward. So the essay is completely different. They're not asking you questions like, I don't know, what's the most challenging experience you've had and why? Or um, I had one that was a frequent saying of Kermit the Frog is, it's not easy being green. Explain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not even joking. That was was an essay I had to write for, I think that was Stanford, actually. Um, Oh, my goodness. I I was thinking Babylon B University or something. Yeah, that was, I really do think that was Stanford. Um, But so those were the types of essays I was writing for the American schools. And then for Cambridge, I just wrote an essay about why I liked studying Latin and classics and what I wanted to do going forward, which was actually a lot easier for me um, to write. So that was a big difference. And does that number of things go through people's minds when they hear, and three years later, I graduated, Mm. either you, you maxed out your program and sped through or by studying just one subject there's I don't know is there less hours or what and what's the explanation of the three years as opposed to four is it it's the program so classics is a three-year undergrad um at in England there's quite a few subjects that are three years so English history um classics a bunch of the humanities are three years Um, Some of the sciences are four years. So engineering is four years. um, Natural sciences is four years. They have an undergraduate medicine degree and that's six years. So it just depends on what you're studying as to how long the degree is. Um, And part of that with classics, I think, is just because you come in with a certain amount of knowledge and all you're doing is studying classics for three years. Now, as far as did they take any interest in Uh, some sort of standardized uh, college entrance exams you may have taken, or was that not a part of their package? Um, They didn't care about my SATs or ACTs or anything like that. They, they wanted my AP exams um, mostly Uh, because that's the closest equivalent to um, they have a levels in the UK. Um, So AP exams is what they consider a level equivalent. So they wanted my AP exams or IB if you do IB um, programming and stuff like that. But the interview, I would say, is probably the most important part um, because they want you to have those scores. But then you're talking to the people who are going to be teaching you and they're asking you questions. The interview is with faculty. Yeah. So it's with um, the man who would be my director of studies the next year and then also the man who would be teaching me Greek. And they had me translate a passage of Latin. So before the interview, I sat in a room by myself for 30 minutes and I translated a passage of Latin. And then I went into my interview and they asked me to walk them through my translation. Um, And then they asked me more questions about sort of classical literature and things like that. In in the three years that you were studying, did you have quite a bit of um, say in what you studied or was it a pretty much uh, everybody goes through the same program type of thing? Um, So I had a little bit of say. So my first year, the curriculum is basically set. So first year classics, 
you're doing basically the same thing as everyone else. Um, then second year, you start to get more choice. So second year, I could choose um, what texts I wanted to study. So we had um, modules. There were four different modules for Latin and four different modules for Greek. And I picked two out of those four. Um, and then you could also pick what additional modules you wanted to study. So there were four um, linguistics, art and archaeology, um, history, and philosophy, and then you could pick two of those four that you wanted to study. Um, so there is still some choice. It's not like everybody's doing exactly the same. Yeah, thing. there's still some choice. And then third year, you have even more choice than that. So third year, they just basically open the field to, they have quite a few um, different modules you can take, and then you pick four that you want to do. Pedagogically, I went to a small college, and so I think my largest class still uh, there was a there was a freshman course where I'm pretty sure the uh, the auditorium was full and it probably held about 400 students, uh, and we had no interaction with the professor. He swooped in, did his lecture, and left. If we had logistics, uh, we dealt with one of his teaching assistants. Right? Is what you have at Cambridge a lot more personal? Uh, it, it seems to me that there's an, a great deal of interaction between a faculty member and small groups of students, if not individual students one-on-one? -on -one. Yeah. So the Cambridge model is basically split in two. So you have your lectures, which is sort of what you would expect in an American university. I don't think mine were ever bigger than about 70, um, but I would have um, one to three lectures a day. Um, you go in, you sit, the professor there gives you a lecture, you leave. Those are optional, so they don't take attendance or anything like that, but they are helpful to go to. And then your really important teaching all happens in things that are called supervisions. So supervisions are very, very, very small classes um, where you do a piece of work before the supervision. So I would do either a translation or write an essay or do a prose composition or some kind of exercise in linguistics or something like that. So a piece of work happens before you even go to the supervision. And then once you're there where you're in a group of, I, I never had a supervision bigger than four and most of mine were one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two students. So they're very, very small. And then you go through that piece of work, whether it be your translation or your essay, and then um, your supervisor usually rips you apart a little bit um, and then asks you questions. So that's where most of the real learning happens, happens is in supervisions. And how often are those? Um, so it depends on what subject you're doing. For me, my first two years, I was having five supervisions a week, which was a lot. Oh, my. Yeah, most, oh. most people only have like around two to three, I would say. Um, but because I had so much translation work, I would right. have more than that. Um, the languages tend to have more supervisions just because you would have to do a short translation that would take you like 30 minutes to an hour and then go have a supervision on that. So I would have five a week. And then my last year, I only had about one per week. But my last year, I was only doing essays. So I, that wasn't as intensive, I would say. So I'm going to ask you one question to get at another question. Uh, the first question is, let's go back to your description of rips you apart a little <laughs> bit. 
draw that out a little bit uh, because because if we are in fact successful here and somebody listening to the podcast goes well I want this for my children they might go whoa 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 what do you mean by rip them apart a little bit <laughs> uh, talk about the 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 criticism or the the uh, ex- explain the rip you apart a little bit yeah so it's it's usually very constructive um, but when you write an essay you're not expecting it to come back to you without lots of things written all over it. So normally you'll have gone wrong somewhere and you're thinking because you're speaking with the people who write the books on these things. Like regularly, my supervisors, I, I, <laughs> I think it's a bit self-indulgent, but they would give me a reading list to do before my essay and half the books and articles would be written by them. And then you're like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but your work would be submitted in advance of the supervision. They would have would you have seen the markups or is it when you walk into the supervision that you see the markups? Yeah. So you walk in and you see the marks up markups and they sort of talk you through places where they felt like your reasoning was weaker or you need to ask more questions or they need to sort of teach a little bit more about some specific area. And a lot of times it's helpful for essay supervisions. I found it really helpful when I had one other person in the supervision with me because then you know, where someone else went wrong might not be where you went wrong. And then where you went wrong might not be where the other person. And so you can sort of um, talk back and forth a little bit about your essays. Um, But the nice thing about those is that none of it is graded. So no piece of work I did the entire year up until my exams had a number on it. So it's all just feedback from your supervisors And then at the very end of the year, the way you get your entire grade for the year is these really massive exams that you take, which can be a bit terrifying, but it's nice during the year because then you're not worried. So if you write an essay and you realize, oh, I don't know anything about this. This is a terrible essay. And then you walk into the supervision. It's not going to affect your grade at the end of the year. It's much more a sort of learning experience. There's a lot here that feels like homeschooling. Or, or, or something very close to it. It's you're interacting with the teacher at a very personal level. So I would assume that some of it is the look on their face <laughs> or the amount of uh, uh, flowing red rivers of ink down the sides or whatnot. But but I, I anticipated the fact that, that a lot of what we work off of, the economy of school here in America is the grade. Uh, a good student rightly to some extent obsesses over that, um, get, gets disappointed with themselves or puzzled at the teacher if, you know, what they thought was a work is anything less than that because that's the, the measuring gauge of, of, of how their efforts uh, are going in class. So, so the UK brings forth or at least Cambridge brings forth this notion, um, we're not really going to give you any of that until the end <laughs> Uh, at least numerically, here in mind, I remember one time you you mentioned to me what you had gotten on an exam, and my eyebrow went up because <laughs> Josie Parker never earned that in my class, so to speak. So uh, explain a little bit assessment. How how do you know how you're doing? Yeah, so, well, I'll first talk about how you know how you're doing during the year. Um, it's pretty obvious if you're you're not doing very well, I would say. Like, your supervisors will make it clear that you need to work on certain areas. Um, and they also write you end of term reports. So you get a report at the end of each term from each of your supervisors that will say, we're predicting that she'll do quite well on her exams or we're predicting that she won't do very well on her exams. 
Um, and so you get that from each of your supervisors. And they also give you less quantitative data as well. They're like, she needs to work on, I don't know, translating prose authors in Greek or something like that. So you get that sort of feedback throughout the year. And then at the end of the year, you take your big exams. And those exams are theoretically graded from zero to 100, but they're actually, they're really not in practice. In practice, they're normally graded somewhere between about, I don't think I've ever seen anything lower than 50, but there you might be able to get something in the 40s up to about 80. Um, and if you get an 80, you're a genius, basically. You've written a piece of work that is publishable in a journal. Um, right, because I think you told me a high 70. Yeah. <laughs> I'm translating that into American ease of, you got to see? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I felt bad for you to explain, no, really, Mr. Ellie, that's that's pretty good. <laughs> so. It's just a different economy. Yeah. So we think here in America of GPA and all this kind of thing. Uh, what's the format uh, for honors in a UK college? Yeah, so they're actually, they're called honors. Um, so you can either get first class honors, second class honors, or third class honors. And second class honors are divided into two ones and two twos. Um so I don't want to get into all the specifics, but a, a first class is basically what you would think of as a 4.0. Two ones are kind of mostly A's, maybe a couple of B's. Um, two twos, mixture of A's, B's, maybe a couple of C's. And then a third is probably about a C. And then once you get under a third, you're you're failing. Obviously, the, the UK system is, is a system from child through a higher education. Is that I don't know a lot about the British lower educational system, but I would assume it's this isn't just into cold water for them, that they've been prepared for this sort of thing. Um, I mean, it's different once you get to university. So in high school, they do a lot more specific learning earlier than we do in the U.S. So they take what are called GCSEs around when you're like ninth or 10th grade. Um, and those are really big exams. And you take probably eight to 10 of them in different subjects at the end of your ninth or 10th grade year. Um, and then after you do your GCSEs, you pick four subjects, sometimes less than that. Some, I think most of the time people only do three. People might do four A-levels. And that's what you study for the rest of your high school. Um, so they have a lot more specific learning earlier. But I think they, they grade on um, a similar scale to us. So they have like A stars, A, B, C, D in high school. Yeah. All right. Well, that's sort of the system. Now let's let's get to brass tacks here. Mm-hmm. Um, you have friends in American university system, parents that attended it as well and told you all kinds of stories and whatnot. Outside experience, the college life experience, how would you compare what you've experienced at Cambridge with what your friends have had at at various American universities? It's very different. Um, I will say that. And also, I don't want to speak to to UK universities as a whole, because Cambridge and Oxford are sort of their own breed, even in the UK. Um, But my, my experience has been something sort of like this. So Cambridge is divided into 31 colleges. So you have um, the university as a whole, And then you have 31 different colleges and those aren't colleges as in, you know, college of education or college of sciences or whatever. Instead, they're more like a living learning place. So it's where you live. It's where you eat. 
where you have activities, where you have specific teaching. So a lot of my supervisions would come out of college. Um, You make friends in college and each of them have a little bit of a different flavor. So um, when you're applying, you apply to go to a specific college. Um, And I was at Peter House, um, which is the oldest and the smallest Cambridge College, um, founded in 1284. Um, (laughs) um, And it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. I love it so much. Um, But our dining hall is actually the oldest secular building in Europe, still used for its original purpose, which is a very long, you know, fun fact. But it's the oldest dining hall in Europe that's still used as a dining hall. Um, so we go in and you eat your meals in this sort of medieval building and it's been refurbished since then. The inside looks like it came out of like the 17th century ish. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's, um, but it's beautiful and we have, um, like formal dining every evening. So if you want to have a three course meal every day of the week in hall, you can. So we have, um, you know, candlelit formal dinners every single day. Um, and they only cost about the equivalent of $7 for students. So if you want to do that, um, a lot of times you go on your birthday or if there's a special occasion or whatever, but some people go all the time. I was actually going about two or three times a week to formal hall, which is something that not a lot of my friends were doing <laughs> back in the U.S. And general, just like, I mean, social life sort of revolves around college and you get similar sort of things like you have clubs that you join and societies and things like that. Um, you make friends outside. I lived in student accommodation the whole time. I didn't have roommates, so they don't really do roommates in the UK. But I got to be friends with people who lived in my house with me and things like that. So in some ways, it was it was fairly similar. But there are also um, notable differences as well. All right. Um, where are you headed with this? What you, You're studying, sounds like you're studying Latin and Greek. And I want to get a master's. I'm assuming it's in the same subject. Mm-hmm. Why? um so i guess the start i really like latin and greek so that was the the main reason why i started studying it is because it's something that's always been really interesting to me and i really like the literature and i really like the culture and learning about how the way that um things that were written in rome and greece have affected our thoughts and our intellectual history even up until today I find very interesting. So during my undergrad, it's it's a bit more broad. So I did a lot of different kinds of literature um, and I focused on doing some historical linguistics. So I did some Proto-Indo-European stuff um, and some Latin sociolinguistics. And then I also did some philosophy as well. Um, a lot of Hellenistic stuff, but I did some Plato and Aristotle too. Um, but moving forward, so my my MPhil that I'm about to start is more of a research-based degree. Um, so I'm going to be doing research on mostly the reception of Cicero in the Renaissance. So I'll be looking into the way that Ciceronian Latin is used by different people um, during the 16th century, mostly. Um, and I'm also going to be doing a bit of stuff in antiquity as well. But that's going to be my my thesis for next year. Um, and moving forward, I think I want to do a PhD. So I'm applying for PhD programs um, this fall. And we'll see where I end up. I'm going to apply back in the UK and in the US. And we'll see where I'm supposed to be. So with a, with a hope of, of teaching, I would assume, with a PhD. 
yeah so i would i would like to teach at a university i think um and if that doesn't work out i think i would probably be happy teaching upper level latin at a high school somewhere but well it seems to me that a lot of what you've described today has drawn some some distinctions um one of the things that concerns me about education at least as i uh, go at it in a, in a high school setting is is the role of the teacher and the role of the student. I, I find many students uh, uh, viewing school as a as something to be endured, something to be survived, something to be, if I can use this term, gamed mm. uh, to to get past it. Listening to you describe your experience at Cambridge, it seems like your motivation, um, your love for the for the subject, and and even. Pr- preparation for supervision is going to have a lot of motivation to do my best uh, to, to go back to uh, Wordsworth, uh, right? Give all thou canst. It, it puts a lot more on the student, but it would seem to me like it would raise the delight level in that you're you're really pursuing things that interest you rather than, you know, some of the courses I had to take in, in American college were of no interest to me. They were just on the list of things that I had to get through to get the degree I wanted. Wind us up today by talking a little bit about about your views of of why a young person should head off into higher education, what they should try and get out of it, what their motivations ought to be, that sort of thing, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I think for some people, the U.S. system does work, um, especially if you aren't sure what you want to do with your life afterwards or what you're really interested in because it allows you to sort of sample lots of different things before you decide that you want to study one thing. But for me, I already knew what I was interested in coming out of high school and I didn't want to spend lots of time in college, like you said, taking, I don't know, college algebra or something like that when I could be spending more time reading, you know, Greek um, or Latin literature. I think that there's too many people at university these days, um, which is going to sound bad when I, when I, whenever I first say it. But I think that the university degree has become this sort of universal credential where in order to get a good job, you have to get a university degree. It doesn't matter what you've studied, really. You just have to have this piece of paper that says, oh, I went somewhere for four years and took some classes in something. That sort of a, it means that the university degree doesn't mean nearly as much as it used to, but it also means that students who would be better off just going and starting a job, doing something that they're passionate about, feel like they have to go and study some subject that they're not interested in at university. I mean, it's been such a joy for me to be able to actually study something that I'm passionate about and that I want to keep learning more about. Um, And I've done it for three years now and I'm still not sick of it. So um, hopefully going forward, I won't um, get tired of classics yet. But I think that that should be the place for university. It should be for people to actually delve into subjects that they're really interested in, not a place where people can go get a piece of paper so they can get a job. Um, There ought to be programs where you can go get a piece of paper so you can get a job. But that I think too much overlap. The university has become the place where people get that piece of paper. And I think we should source that to, you know, technical institutions and even, you know, some um, internship programs or apprenticeships, things like that are really undervalued in today's society, uh, which I think is unfortunate because it makes the university undervalued as well. Um, 
as what it should be. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with your assessment. I, I talk to students all the time about why you want to go to college. And I guess I could probably come up with a list of maybe 10 specific things that they, they look forward to in college. Uh, there was a lot about sort of social, I'm trying to avoid the word party <laughs> aspects, uh, the fun, right? That that when they talk to their parents about college, that often is what is emphasized, the good times that were had, uh, which I don't hear absent from your description of Cambridge. Uh, and I would assume many of the things that are on that list are things that you did experience uh, at Cambridge. And, and I certainly don't want any student... Um, foregoing that enjoyment but what's causing the enjoyment and i think in many cases the sort of party attitude of many college students in america is because they're having to endure stuff in the classroom that's not that engaging and really not anything to do with what they want yeah so on the weekend we <laughs> we kind of forget about how miserable our lives are um whereas uh the descriptions i have from folks that have either here in the states or abroad, found a program that fits what they're trying to become, then the actual experience of the classroom, of the conversations between, you know, it's one of the things with St. John's, again, is, is their Friday night conversations where this small college gathers, most everybody gathers in the green outside the dining hall after dinner and has, with the faculty present, a good rousing argument hmm. um, that I, in a, in a 40,000 student state university of today, that's not possible, first of all. <laughs> uh, uh, but even if they attempted it, I think it would be poorly attended because there's so many other more interesting things to do. So the, the, the college or the university as a place of thought and interaction and this unique time in my life when I get to just sort of think a lot. Uh, I hope it's not totally disappearing, but I, I agree with your assessment that there's a lot of people who don't want that, that are in that place, making those who do want that experience a little bit harder to, to have. Um, yeah, and I haven't even um, really gone into one of the, the big things about studying at Cambridge as well, is that you're studying with other people who are also at Cambridge. Um, so you're studying with some of the brightest people in the world. Um in a setting where you're interacting with them on a day-to-day -day basis, you're attending societies with them. Um, we actually had, so in Peterhouse, it's not quite the same as what they have at St. John's, but we have our history society, our politics society, and then the Pern Club, which is our humanities society. And there's also the Kelvin Club, which is the sciences society. But they put on talks about once every couple of weeks and normally about 20 to 40 people show up, but you go, you listen to a talk, and then you have conversations, and it's in a nice little parlor, there's a little fireplace, and um, you spend a lot of time after that just sort of chatting with people about, I don't know, an interesting subject that you just heard a talk on. And I would go to stuff that I knew absolutely nothing about. Like I went to a humanity society talk on Chinese folklore one time, and I knew absolutely nothing about it. Um, but going in, you can chat with the person who's given the talk, who's usually a researcher um, at the university or somewhere else. And you can also talk with other people who know lots of things um, about that topic. So that that's a really cool thing that I've gotten to do at Cambridge is meet a lot of really bright people who are also passionate about what they're studying. Um, 
And there's definitely lots of social aspects. I mean, I we go out to eat together. We hang out in our um, dorms. We stay up till like to chatting and things like that. Um, that you get at an American college experience as well. Um, but yeah, the, I think the people are are one of the the best parts about studying at a place like Cambridge and Peterhouse in particular. Well, wonderful. Appreciate you coming on and uh, talking with me about some of the differences and likenesses. Uh, college is a is a is a big deal. It requires, I think, uh, in some regards, it's if if you're going to go, it's it's a really big life directing decision. Uh, it shapes you in many ways most of us are even unconscious of. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for the poem. I appreciate you and, and what you're trying to do. We might have to have you back on when you're uh, Dr. Parker <laughs> and uh, <laughs> hear about uh, that experience. But um, uh, until next time, listeners, hope you've enjoyed this conversation. And uh, as always, share with other folks about the benefits of listening to the Back Porch Education Podcast. You don't eat your vegetables!